0: Good morning and welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show podcast. Today is Monday, September 26th, 2022. Uh, Lots of news over the weekend, lots of news today. Uh, All sorts of different interesting things. Uh, By the way, big question for today's podcast. Will the world face an underpopulation crisis? Uh, We're going to speak with Marion Tupi from uh, Cato Institute, who co-authored a new book, arguing that the collapse of population in Western nations could create an economic and cultural crisis, and that the resources of this world are almost limitless, and we should stop indulging in Malthusianism. Really great conversation. I think you're really going to enjoy this, and hopefully you'll enjoy the book as well. That's coming up. Uh, However, today, probably the biggest news over the last 24 hours or so uh, has been the Washington Post-ABC News poll. Uh, which is unusual because normally we would sniff at this, but um, it is actually sort of a bellwether of, I think, where the midterm polling is going to go. Now, the the top line number on this thing uh, showed that Republicans had a one-point edge in the generic congressional poll, which is uh, you know uh, pretty good because anything better than a D plus five on generic ballots is usually a pretty good sign for Republicans. And especially when you factor in, you know, first term midterms, unpopular president who's supposedly been bouncing back of late—that sort of thing—you um, would expect that to be pretty good news, especially from the Washington Post ABC series, which is usually pretty friendly to Democrats. However, if you drill down into this a little bit more, and I and I admit I actually missed this at first until somebody pointed it out to me—that was the registered voter result. The likely voter model result was R plus five. And Joe Biden at 39% uh, in in terms of job approval. Actually, I think the 39% may have been <laughs> registered voters. Um, and if you take a look at the polling that's been going on, and bear in mind we have states that are actually starting to vote now, right? I mean, early voting has started. I think in Pennsylvania at least, and maybe a couple of other states. And pollsters are still using a registered voter model. The polls that, at least on the generic ballot, right? The polls that come back. Um, on RV are almost all favorable to Democrats, although maybe not favorable enough. Again, Democrats really need to be at like a D plus five for just a hold, right? Um, Let alone gain seats. And there's all sorts of structural reasons for that. This is just a a phenomenon that we're we're used to dealing with in the congressional ballot. But when you, the polls that use likely voter models, (laughs) including the Washington Post poll, all come back, with republican leads. With one exception, I think there was one exception that was a tie. But there isn't a Demo- there isn't a democrat lead among any of the likely voter model polls. And so you have to ask yourself, why are pollsters still not applying likely voter um, modeling to their polling results? Why are they not testing for that? And the answer seems to be that Republicans are a lot more enthusiastic and that that would create a um, maybe a little too real of a result uh, that this that this despite all of the media coverage, despite the spin, despite the, the, the talk about abortion, um, that the red wave is still coming. And you can ta- you can take a look at the Washington Post ABC uh, poll results. And in fact, I took a look at it yesterday. David Strom took a look at it this morning. Both are extremely popular um, posts. Um, and so you'll want to read both of them. But if you take a look at this, you take a look at the issues, right? And many has been pounding on inflation or excuse me, abortion all summer long at the expense of inflation. Inflation is not a problem. This is the reason why Joe Biden held his silly um, mission accomplished party on September 13th. On the, uh, They scheduled it for the afternoon of the morning when the consumer price index report came out and the consumer price index report showed that year on year inflation is still at 8.3%. Core inflation actually went up in August. Um, so it was, it was a supremely stupid uh, decision on their part to have a mission accomplished party. Uh, on inflation. But if you take a look at the issues, abortion comes in fifth. If you talk, if you take a look at the most important or very important issues, and this is multi-choice in the Washington Post-ABC survey, in- abortion comes in fifth. What comes in first? Inflation of well, the economy. Inflation, crime, immigration, all of those are above abortion and climate change, which are the fifth and sixth Uh, issues on the list if if you actually calculate out that. And those are the two issues that Democrats want to make the midterms about. Joe Biden's at 39%. They want to make the midterms a referendum on Donald Trump. It doesn't appear to be working. And if you're getting that kind of a result from the Washington Post ABC poll, it's really not working. So that's sort of the top story. It's the most trafficked story, I guess you can say, uh, on hot air over the last couple of days. There's obviously lots of other things going on. Uh, The latest from Russia is really curious, which is uh, uh, Patriarch Carol's call uh, to martyrdom in Ukraine uh, for Russian Orthodox men. Um, Now, Vladimir Putin is having a very bad time mobilizing more forces for Ukraine. They're having to basically Shanghai people. We used to call it Shanghai. We'll call it impressment in case anybody's offended by the term Shanghaiing Shanghai. Um, but they're having to basically use impressment to, um, to seize men for cannon fodder. These are not going to be uh, effective troops, combat effective troops. And in the post that I have this morning, I, I rely on uh, Institute for uh, the study of war, so understandingwar.org to talk about all the reasons why the Russian mobilization regime is completely incompetent. Uh, there's there's really good reasons for that. But I mean, you can see it on the streets. People are being seized. The anti-war protesters are being uh, drafted uh, by police on the spot. Uh, if you're filling your if you're filling your ranks with anti-war protesters, criminals, and dissidents you're not going to field an effective combat force i mean you're just simply not what you're going to get is a whole lot of officers fragged as uh, as all those people run from the battle those are people who are not committed to fighting <laughs> uh, needless to say this is this is not even analogous to the american draft of the late 1960s early 1970s i mean that draft was you know it had its own issues but it was never anything this bad And the idea that you're going to form those types of uh, those types of conscripts into an effective fighting force is simply fantasy. It's absolute fantasy. And the idea that uh, that they're going to listen to Kirill and march off into martyrdom so that they can die for holy Russia and having and have their sins washed away. And that's a quote washed away by their death in Ukraine is 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 almost pathological if if not entirely pathological. Theologically, it's pathological. It's insane. And that, that type of martyrdom call is really a last act of desperation. That's what you do when you can't get anybody to sign up for your little war. And Patriarch Carroll, I, I suspect that Patriarch Carroll at his heart is an atheist. <laughs> and I think Putin is his uh, secular god, but we can maybe put that aside for later. Um, uh, this is, I mean, this is desperation time and you've even got some of the people who are the biggest cheerleaders for this. Uh, I, I, I can't remember her name, Simonyan, um, at RT, who's been the biggest cheerleader for the war in Ukraine, criticizing Putin over the way that the mobilization is taking place and the sick people that they're having to conscript into the army. I mean, that's not a good sign. Uh, that your domestic uh, tranquility is is going to be reliable. Uh, There was a report over the weekend that Vladimir Putin spent the weekend outside of Moscow hiding out in his forest palace. Apparently pretty nice. (laughs) It sort of harkens back to the the Soviet era where all of the leaders had these really cushy dachas. And, um, you know, some people are more equal than others in the Soviet system. And apparently that hasn't changed in modern Russia. But, um, but that is desperation. That's sheer desperation. Maybe we'll get, um, we should try to get, um, uh, somebody on to talk about that this week because, or at least Carol's role in that because, uh, it's absolutely insane. And so that's uh, another post that went up this morning. Hopefully uh, you got a chance to read through that. Uh, lots of other stuff going on Got David Strom's take on the, um, on the Washington Post poll, Karen Townsend's doing some really great stuff today, talking about Eric Adams building a tent city in the Bronx for the um, for immigrants, and uh, the locals are very much not happy about that. And I also have something about the Italian elections, where the where the right um, the the parties on the right end up winning, and you've got a full on media freakout over the most right wing uh, government in Italy since Benito Mussolini. Well, that's not hard to do. <laughs> We've been electing people from the left and the far left ever since Benito Mussolini. Uh, you know, if Mitt Romney won <laughs> in, in Italy, he'd be the most right-wing person that they've ever elected. Even serving, uh, you know, Silvio Berlusconi was not really right-wing. He was sort of a center-left populist who just got, who, who just got under the EU skin. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's such a silly response. This is, you know, Georgia Maloney is somebody who's, Working with uh, Mario Draghi at the moment, and has built, uh, has 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 built engagement with other parties on the left. I mean, that's not a fascist model. <laughs> fascist model is autocracy. This is not a fascist model. Now, could it turn into a fascist model? Sure, you know. Then, then at that point, you start worrying about it. But all this is really is just simple conservatism, and the media is in full freakout mode, and in, invoking the name of Benito Mussolini for God knows what reason. Uh, It's insane. And so be careful when you're when you're hearing all this about the Italian elections. That's 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 my advice to you. Uh, At any rate, let's go now to the um, to my interview with Marion Tupi about the coming underpopulation crisis. It's sort of like the reverse population bomb, which comes up for a mention or two in our discussion. And stick around at the end for uh, for information on how you can subscribe to both this podcast and our VIP and VIP gold memberships. Thanks for listening. Don't miss a minute of The Ed Morrissey Show. Welcome back to The Ed Morrissey Show podcast. Uh, is the world overpopulated or is it underpopulated? We are going to discuss that today uh Marion Tupi, who just wrote a great column over at Town Hall a few days ago uh does the world face an underpopulation problem and uh talk also about the book uh Superabundance the story of population growth innovation and human flourishing on an infinitely bountiful planet. Marion, great to have you with us today. Thank you very much. It's a great honor to be on your show. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And uh, look, I mean, I think it's uh, I always like counterintuitive takes, right? But if you've grown up in the last 50 years, 52 years, really since the population bomb has, you know, was published, I, I mean, I think that everybody thinks, well, you know, the world is overpopulated. I think that there's different differences and and how to address that. I don't think, you know, the, you need to go the full uh, nihilist approach that the population bomb sort of um, advocated. But you're arguing that actually... The world is underpopulated and a population crash is much more dangerous to humanity than an expanding human population. Tell us a little bit about how you came to that.
1: I wasn't suggesting that the world is underpopulated at present, but that it could be underpopulated in the future. And and that that has serious consequences that we need to be talking about now. One of those consequences is that the United States has a massive debt and is running a huge deficit every year. And uh, we will need people in the future to be able to pay it down. And the United States is just one example of many, many countries in developed advanced world uh, who have huge amounts of debt. We will need people to do that. The the other part is, of course, that our governments in the West, in advanced countries, have uh, promised to future generations all sorts of goodies that we don't know how we are going to pay for, including Social Security. So if you are going to have a collapse of population, where is that money for the future retirees going to come from? And, and these, believe it or not, are actually uh, some of the lesser concerns. A bigger concern, much bigger concern is, of course, that the human brain is the driver of economic and technological and scientific progress. So if the human population is going to decline, then in the future, we are also going to have much less economic growth. And uh, that means a poorer world. That's something that I think people like Elon Musk have on their mind when they are talking about the danger of depopulation.
0: Yeah, you know, and I, I, certainly if you're looking at it from a long-term fiscal perspective, I mean, we're already seeing some of the consequences of that. And some of that is because people live longer. Uh, you know, for instance, you mentioned Social Security, right? Social Security was implemented in the 1930s, um, when you had, I think, the ratio was 15 workers to a retiree, uh, because the you know, the average life expectancy in America at that time was somewhere in the early to mid 60s, right? I mean, I'd be coming up. <laughs> it's kind of a depressing thought, but I'd be coming up to that uh, to that uh, average lifespan here pretty quick um, under those conditions, and of course because we've had all of this great innovation and, and great research and and, and and new developments in medicine and technology, people are living a lot longer. So they're retired a lot longer. And so you've got more retirees per um, per worker, probably a better way of putting this is because that's actually not quite accurate. You've got fewer workers per retiree. I think it's down to like three to one or two and a half to one at this point in time, which is a huge problem when it comes to floating programs, like Social Security, and as you say, the United States is not the only country that has this problem. Most of Europe has this problem. China has this problem. They created that one for themselves. Um, in fact, I, you know, Russia is another great example of a country that's got a huge problem in terms of even just replacing the population they have right now. Uh, so yeah, I mean, in a sense, when you're talking about safety net programs, we're already there, right? We're already underpopulated
1: yes our pyramid is certainly not as healthy as it used to be uh american uh, american birth rates right now for native-born women are 1.7 per woman per lifetime and you need 2.1 to just keep population at a replacement level america is still growing because of immigration uh, but this is not an avenue which is open to a number of other countries in south korea for example woman a typical woman has 0.9 children Uh, on average per lifetime. Uh, And again, as I said, they need 2.1. So it is a serious problem. And of course, I believe in freedom. I believe that men and women uh, who get together should be able to choose as many babies as they want. What I don't want uh, is for them to be making these very personal and intimate decisions made on the basis of Uh, unjustifiable, unjust, and completely invented uh, feelings of doom and gloom about the future. So to the extent that our intellectual environment is dominated about these visions of the apocalypse in in the future, what I'm saying is slow down a little, Um, have as many babies as you want, but just don't listen to people who are telling you the world is on fire, that we are going to run out of resources, that humans are a cancer on the planet. Um, or that it is a selfish act to bring a child into the world, have as many as you want, but don 't listen to the doomsters,
0: yeah, I mean, I think that this is a um it's a cultural thing right and I get, and again, I think this goes back to uh probably the pill in you know the very early nineteen sixties but also but more than that, probably population bomb and a lot of um you know um, apocalyptic predictions about you know peak oil peak. Everything, right? You know, peak resources. You know, you're too young to have gone through 1970s cinema, but I can tell you, you know, there was there was a lot of movies about uh, about the you know this apocalyptic vision of a of of a world that had run out of resources. Soylent Green comes to mind. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Soylent Green.
1: Of course, uh, I had. It, I had to say it partly because of the work that we are doing, but let's not forget. Sol and Green is a direct outcome of the 1968 population bomb. It was filmed in 1973, but the key to think to to say about Sol and Green is, of course, that it's supposed to be happening in 2022. It's That's right. this year. Yes, it was based in the future, but the future was 2022. That's this year. So I think it's quite opposite. Uh, opposite that we have come uh, with this book in this year because it it shows you how crazy and completely unsupportable those kinds of worries have been in the past.
0: So I, I had actually forgotten that it was that the that it was set in 2022. You're correct. I and it's you're right. It's very opposite that we're that we're coming to this right now. So when you when you hear people saying, well, look, we you know, the the world is just too large. We're not able to feed people. We're not." I think the the thing that you hear about now is water, right? Water resources, I mean, especially because, again, you know, the United States is going through a drought. And I think Europe has got to I think Spain and a couple of the other European countries are going through a drought. Droughts are nothing new, by the way. Droughts, droughts come and go. But two things on that. And again, we're speaking with Marion Tupi, who's also a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. I really should uh, mention that because I love, uh, the Cato Institute and the work that they do there. Um, first off, you know, we tend to think of these things, including hot weather as man-made a, and B, um, uh, sort of a point of no return. And I think when you're talking about, you know, don't listen to the doomsayers, all you're hearing is doom, right? The world is warming, the world is warming, and it's never going to go backwards. And, (laughs) It's it to me, it's it's almost like a time, a kind of presentism, Marion, which is to say, well, we 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 know the climate that we've experienced as an industrial society for 200 years, and we just think that that's um, that's a um, representative record of the climate record of a planet that's around four billion years old and has many, many, many climate shifts in its uh thing. I'm not saying that climate. You know isn't an issue i'm not saying that resources might not be limited but we keep seeming to go over this it's like chewing the same thing all over again without realizing how much we really don't know
1: well the difference between us and other animals is that we can plan for the future we have self-awareness and most importantly we have intelligence so when we encounter a problem we try to solve it water is a perfect example of a problem which is not really a problem at all the world is covered 75% of it by water. It's just the wrong kind of water. And we already know how to turn wrong kind of water into right kind of water. It's called desalination. You just build a plant and then uh, you take uh, uh, salt water and turn it into fresh water. Uh, Israel right now um, uh, recycles 92% of its water and uh, whatever other water they need, they just use desalination plants. And that enables Israel which has almost no natural water reserves to not only be an agricultural superpower, they are exporting agricultural produce to the rest of the world, but also they have enough water to sustain themselves and to export it to other surrounding Arab countries. So the difference between drought and not having access to water and having plentiful water is just human intelligence and a goal-oriented uh, society and uh, and f- far-thinking politicians who can who who make these decisions now i realize that far-thinking politician is a uh, is a bit of an oxymoron but clearly some But clearly, some countries are able to plan for the future much better than others. And it is perhaps because Israel is under so much external threat that they have to have the long term view, whereas we don't. Part of the reason why we don't have enough water in, say, for example, out west is because water is still mispriced. It is very, very cheap. Nobody has any incentive to be looking for new deposits of water. Once water water goes up in price, that will be a market signal to uh, investors uh, in the private sector to look for other water deposits or to start saving water or to come up with uh, with alternatives, such as, for example, um, doing desalination. So, so market signal and human brain within the market can overcome all of these shortages. I think that when people are worried about water, but they could be worried about anything, they could be worried about copper or lithium or anything. Is that they look at a problem and they and they think that technology is dynamic, but technology is not dynamic it's uh, 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 sorry the technology is not dynamic, but in fact technology is dynamic technology continues to evolve, and especially in a in an environment where you have um, where you have market shocks or prices spiking, a lot more people have an incentive now to go and invent a, um, a something that will get us beyond those shortages because they are looking for a profit motive. For, for that, you have to have really just a society which values entrepreneurs, a society which values human beings, human intelligence, and also which allows for the market to function and profit to be made. So it sounds like you're you're talking about capitalism, but I know you can't be talking about that because that gets us
0: kicked off of uh, uh, Facebook and and Twitter. No, I'm I'm, I'm very
1: much talking. I'm very much talking about <laughs> capitalism. I, no, grew no, up, I, I grew up under socialism, and it wasn't uh, it wasn't great. I'm much happier here. Let's talk a little bit about that dynamic too.
0: I mean, I, I I'm a huge free market kind of guy. I, I like talking about capitalism. I think that a well regulated, lightly regulated, free market is incredibly dynamic, incredibly innovative in just the same way that you're talking about. I want to marry that concept up with population, because I think this is the key. And I think it might be one of the key points that you're going to make in in the book. And I really should read off the the book title again, Super Abundance, the Story of Population Growth, Innovation, and Human Flourishing on an Infinitely Bountiful Planet. And it's this, it's that the innovation, the innovation power of populations grow when populations grow, right? The more minds you have working um, on, on issues, the better um, solutions end up emerging. Um, and so it's, I think it's a one way to look at the technological arc of the 20th century, 20th century going into the 21st century, you know, you, you go from agrarian societies that are starting to industrialize, in the 19th century and they, they start industrializing the, and and they, the population expands be, in large part because people die less at younger ages. Right. And so you get this swell of population, which translates then to some incredible innovations. I mean, it, it, you look back 120 years ago to today, and it's an amazing Uh, advancement in human human technology in a very tiny slice of human history? And does that come from having larger populations that simply can work with each other to come up with more and more uh, technological advances?
1: To a large extent, in our book, we say that superabundance equals population times freedom. Obviously, having more people in the world is not enough. China became the world's most populous country 2000 years ago. But until very recently, it was dirt poor. The reason why China is now one of the largest economies in the world, if not the largest, although their GDP per capita is smaller than ours, is because in 1978, they stopped killing each other and instead they embraced the market mechanism. Maybe not perfectly, uh, freedom in China is much lesser than it is in the United States. But they stopped pursuing crazy uh, communist uh, political and economic ideals. So, So population is very important. In 1800, there was only 1 billion people in the world. Now there are eight of us. And let's not forget, not all of us are innovators. There is only a small sliver of population which innovates at any given time, maybe 5%. So 5% of 1 billion is much less in terms of absolute numbers than, than, than 5% of 8 billion. When you combine it with the spread of economic and political freedom, again, something that happened by and large in, 18, sorry, in 19th and 20th centuries, many more countries um, now are economically and politically free than ever before. You have this galvanizing effect, which can contribute to the creation of superabundance. Um, so freedom is important, uh, but the human brain, as I said, is very important because it's only in the human brain that a new idea can be born, a new idea which can lead to an invention. That gets tested in the marketplace. And at the end of that process, you have a valuable invention, innovation which can, which can increase standards of living, uh, productivity, make us all richer and uh, drive prices down. In fact, in our book, we find that every 1% increase in population decreases prices by 1%.
0: Oh, that's an interesting, that's an interesting comparison. Now, have we seen large scale decreases in human population? Um, We certainly did during the Black Plague, for instance, I'm not sure how much we can we can glean from technological setbacks during that period. But um, up until the 20th century, really up until the second half of the 20th century, had we ever seen Sort of artificially imposed uh, population growth, or you know, uh, or, or reverse, you know, population growth in the in the human experience. And if we have, what do you learn from those periods?
1: Well, uh, you know, I was recently thinking. When the Bronze Age started, uh, you know we get Homer's Iliad from that time, the Trojan right. War. There were only 14 million people in the in in the world. 14 million. That's one fourth. That's that's very little. And there have been times when the bottlenecks, when when a variety of disasters, which may not have been connected to each other, um, have resulted in these bottlenecks where where actually there were only a few hundred or a few thousand people around the world. So so actually we've come close to extinction before. Um, but you know, the human population tended to fluctuate. So for example, at the time of Christ or Caesar Augustus, for those who are secularly inclined, there was only about 300 million people in the world, maybe somewhere between 300 and 400 million. A thousand years later, um, or 1500 years later, the, the world's population is still only around 400 million, 500 million. So, so population tended to fluctuate. The, the only time, when we have seen a sustained increase in population was also the, sus- the age of sustained innovation. People have always innovated, uh, but they have never innovated in sustained fashion. So occasionally you would, you would have an innovation, which would then be the only innovation for thousands of years. But it's only in the last 200 years that people have innovated basically every day. Um, and they have done so, I think, partly because of, uh, of this political and economic freedom, which has spread at the end of the 18th century and beginning of 19th century.
0: Well, political and economic freedom. And I think that's also expressed in a much more diverse division of labor too, right? The innovators can afford to innovate because they can, they're can they free to innovate because there's a division of labor, a, a sort of an incredibly diverse division of labor that happens in free societies, in free market societies, where you don't have top-down control of uh, of the economy and dictates as to who works where and who does what. So people can gravitate towards their expertise, or at least they have the freedom to do that. And they should be able to do that more. And I think this is the reason why you see much more innovation in countries with lower populations. And I think this is another point that you're probably going to raise in your book as well. Uh, like the United States as compared to China, like the United States, you know, maybe, you know, uh, 80, 90 years ago as compared to um, the Russian empire, the, you know, the um, even the British empire to some extent. Um, it had to do with the fact that there was mobility, I guess, economic mobility built into those systems.
1: Well, yes, when agriculture was very primitive and very unproductive, then, of course, everybody had to work in agriculture in order to be able to produce the food which they, which they ate that very day. As late as 1900, 50 percent forgive me, 40% of Americans were involved in agriculture. They were agricultural laborers. So obviously, we had very many fewer people to be engaged in science um, or or medicine or technology and that sort of thing. But now that all of our food can be produced by 1.5% of Americans, not just for the United States, but the rest of the world. I mean, we feed not just America, but also other countries. Um that means that people no longer have to be doing backbreaking work in the fields. They can now go and study, get can go off to university, get advanced degrees, and uh, um busy themselves in STEM. Of course, the United States is uh, we only our population is only 330 million, but we are a part of a global exchange of information that is in itself a product of liberalism with small L. I, I want to emphasize that. Um people around the world. Use the word liberalism very different than we use it in the United States. By liberalism, I just mean freedom, it's classical liberalism, and uh, and um, and and we are part of this liberal economy, so to speak, or you know, free market economy, where we are able to interact with people all around the world. The the one and a half billion people in India, the one point three billion people in China, to the extent that they are permitted to talk to us, we can exchange information with them. The whole of Western Europe, so we are part of this tremendous tremendous thinking machine which is enabled by by a lot of things including the dramatically declining cost of information exchange and transfer and this is i think getting back to the point of
0: depopulation right first off you lose that that vast interconnected network of yeah. innovators and thinkers and and designers and builders but what you also lose is some of the division of labor if you have a population collapse at this point in time a lot of people are going to have to start making their own food again and so uh, you know <laughs> growing their own food yeah i'm a farmer <laughs> but i mean I, but you're going to go back to subsistence living for a lot more a lot higher percentage of the population that remains if you have this you, know, was, you, you hear this mary and you hear people say well what we really need is we need to get the pop human population down to 1 billion people and it's always them that is going to be part of the billion that's
1: left i mean that's oh, you know, of course of course of course um that's same thing like when people say that life in the past was was better that's because they imagined that they would be reincarnated as a princess or a knight rather than <laughs> rather, rather than a peasant you know covered in excrement you know bent over yeah. in the field
0: go go so, go watch go watch Monty Python and the Holy Grail and Dennis the, the whole Dennis the peasant sketch and you get an idea of what it was like to be alive in those times. <laughs> exactly.
1: Yeah. yeah, and 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 I mean the, the, you know the the world could go down to uh, a billion people but our standards of living would be just just reduced by orders of magnitude and it would be a horrible world to live in.
0: And again it would be it, you'd, you most of the population would have to go back to subsistence living. Including in places where that has not been the case for decades, if you know, if not a century or more, um, and those are the places that are the innovators at the moment. You know, the the West, for instance, even to some extent, China, which has, you know, at least moved their standard of living away enough from. You know, you know we can get into the methods of that, but that's not really the po- the point of your book. But everybody, I think, would end up you t- you'd be talking about the kind of Dark Ages. <laughs> We used to talk about, you know, prior to the Renaissance.
1: Yeah. And a lot of knowledge would be lost as well. This has happened before, by the way, when Tasmania was separated from the rest of Australia uh, after the seas rose uh, 20,000 years ago or whatever it was. Um, a small band of Tasmanians got stranded on. Uh, sorry, small band of Aborigines got stranded on Tasmania, and because there were so few of them, they kept on procreating. But uh, but but there were so few of them that they actually lost knowledge. By the time they were rediscovered, their technology was backward compared to the technological advancement in Australia proper, because when you have very few people, all that information is uh, uh, is is concentrated in the hands of very few people. So let's say that your society can only afford three fishermen and they are out fishing and suddenly they get uh you know they get blown away into the into the ocean or they die in a in a sailing accident well then your your knowledge of fishing has gone with them or let's say that you have one guy in the village who can make shoes and that guy gets a heart attack or gets eaten by a lion well that's the knowledge which is gone so so i i think that we 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 certainly we certainly uh, be should be concerned about the potential for depopulation, and uh, we shouldn't be worried about running out of resources because if anything, resources are becoming cheaper. So have as many bas- babies as you want, but please don't listen to the doomsters and the gloomsters. The future can be bright, but it's up to us. Nothing is guaranteed in the future. Uh, you know, we could we have a madman in Europe and in other places threatening war. Um, um, but but based on, on past performance, it would seem that our future could be just as glorious, if not better. And, of course, the book, uh, you know, have babies, don't
0: listen to the Doomsavers, read the book. <laughs> Super Abundance, the Story of Population Growth, Innovation, and Human Flourishing on an Infinitely Bountiful Planet. Managed to get that out right the first time, that one. Uh, Marianne Tupi and with, co-authored with uh, Gail L. Pooley. Uh, you can also go to uh, cato.org for the Cato Institute. Uh, Marion is a senior fellow there. Marion, thanks so much for being with us. Really appreciate the
1: conversation. Thank you very much. And the book can be also found on superabundance.com. You can go to that ah. website and buy that way. Thank you very much. Thank you, Marion. Stay
0: tuned for one more message from the Ed Morrissey Show coming up next. Thank you for watching or listening to the Ed Morrissey Show podcast. You can subscribe to us on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and through the Town Hall Media Player. Or you can just come to HotAir.com and watch my podcast for free. However, I'd also love to have you join us as members of our VIP and VIP Gold programs That allows us to defeat the stranglehold that big tech has on information and get you the best information that we possibly can. Plus we have a lot of new value added content coming to us from town hall media uh, stars. And my good friend, Adam Baldwin, he and I are doing the video series, The Amiable Skeptics. It's one hour of discussion a week, strictly for our VIP and VIP gold members. Plus, we have our VIP Gold chat with Kem Edwards every Wednesday afternoon at 1.30 p.m. We'd love to have you as members. Be sure to join up. Thanks again for watching the Ed Morrissey Show podcast.